welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my friend Pete Spiliakos for another discussion in our series on the American scene. We are talking today about Justice League, the Zack Snyder movie that ended up not looking at all like a Zack Snyder movie. He was fired and he quit during production and DC lost its greatest artist and Warner Brothers had to go over and hire the the Apex director from over at Marvel, Joss Whedon, and it ended up with tragedy done with slapstick, very strange sort of thing, and this is our subject of conversation for the day. Hello Pete. How's it going Titus? Oh great, except that the subject is a bit on the sad side. I am a fan of Zack Snyder, I love most of the stuff he's done. And it didn't break my heart, but it really gave me a couple of bad days to see that this did not work out as he had hoped and as I had hoped a Justice League movie would. Yeah, it's a strange movie. Part of me liked it, but I could also recognize that it's just not a good movie. And there's a lot of things that are wrong with it. And one thing that struck me was, as I'm watching the movie, how poorly it compares to even a third-rate Marvel property like Ant-Man. That was my point of comparison, because Ant-Man is light fare by the standards of Marvel movies, and it's not the most important Marvel property, or the second, or the third, or the fourth. And so much more care and quality control and heart went into Ant-Man than went into Justice League, that it, it's really disappointing. You know how some movies often have subtitles, like Captain America, colon, Winter Soldier, or it's Avengers, colon, Infinity War? This should have been called Justice League, colon, let's just get this the hell over with. Because it felt like the people who are making the movie had given up on making a good movie. So they just figured, let's get from point A to point B without totally embarrassing ourselves and not entirely succeeding. This quit on making a good movie. But on the other hand, this is also the movie that I would have liked when I was a nine-year-old kid. In the same way that the first Avengers movie felt like a really good 1960s Avengers comic book updated and brought to life. Justice League felt like a really bad 1980s cartoon. It didn't feel like an episode of Justice League. Theoretically, they're adapting the Jim Lee revival of Justice League from about 10 years ago. In reality, they're updating the last season of Super Friends from the mid-1980s, the season that introduced Cyborg. And it feels like that, structurally. It doesn't feel like a post-Blade superhero movie. Structurally, it feels like one of the multi-episode story arcs in Transformers or G.I. Joe. Whenever they have multi-episode story arcs, you would have the bad guys, whether the Decepticons or Cobra, trying to capture a multi-part MacGuffin and actually getting all the parts. And then the last episode would be the heroes getting together and stopping them from using it. So in G.I. Joe, you might have to get certain parts of the Weather Dominator and put it together. And the first two acts are the heroes failing to stop the bad guys from getting the various parts. And then the last episode is the parts of the MacGuffin are together, but somehow the heroes still triumph. Well, that is literally the structure of this movie. The entire movie is Steppenwolf, a villain with absolutely no character or motivation, getting the different parts of the Weather Dominator, only now it's called the Mother Box, and then putting them together. And then the last act is the heroes having to stop this all-powerful MacGuffin that's now put together. You know, superhero movies get mocked as being just vehicles for merchandising, for selling toys. That's just generally not true. Even lighter superhero movies like Ant-Man have certain themes to them. Ant-Man has a deeper level, which is, what is it like to be a downwardly mobile dad? That is the emotional driver of the movie. Guardians of the Galaxy, another light movie. Also a movie that has another bad villain. 
there's weaknesses. But Guardians of the Galaxy, the question is, what is it like to live in an atomized society? What is it like to live in a world without family? And what does it mean to be an orphan? And how does one form families in this environment? Where Justice League is about none of those things. I'd gotten the Justice League DVD set simply out of nostalgia. I'm not going to defend myself. And I wasn't just watching the Justice League cartoons. I was also listening to the audio commentary by the creators. And one of the creators said, since we couldn't trust the animators to produce anything that looked like what we told them to produce, what we ended up doing was our dialogue had to be extremely utilitarian, which meant that if we're being attacked by something, we can't say, just get out of the way. We have to say, get out of the way. It's the blah, blah, blah. And Justice League feels like that, especially in the first two acts. There were multiple points where I was saying the dialogue with the characters, even though I'd never seen the movie before, because the dialogue is just that utilitarian and just that predictable. It only exists to get the characters from one not particularly good fight scene to the next. Now, don't get me wrong, when I was nine, I would have enjoyed it because it would have been much more thrillingly violent than anything I could see on television. And when I was nine, I didn't necessarily want those deeper emotional levels. But as I'm watching this movie, I'm like, this is a movie that's literally for elementary school students. We're used to having our superhero movies operate on multiple levels in the same way that the Warner Brothers cartoons from the 40s operated on multiple levels. There were jokes that the kids would get that the parents would appreciate. But there were also a lot of jokes that the parents would appreciate that the kids weren't necessarily get. And we're used to having that in our superhero movies now. We think of them as being kid stuff, but they're not kid stuff. They're written at multiple levels. But this is a story that's almost entirely written at one level, not even particularly good. It just feels really perfunctory and really poorly manipulative. And of course, there's also some good stuff in it, too. But it also makes me appreciate how much more thought went into all these other superhero movies as opposed to this disaster. Yeah, I see your point, and this is in fact something nobody has been talking about that I know. It's a great insight, Pete. It is, in all these ways, a throwback, but I think I can improve on your genealogy. Before these 80s TV shows, there were bad fantasy books and bad sci-fi books, the lowest form of adventuring, and now there are computer games. This is like a not particularly good console computer game where you get super excited about fights and they have some kind of cinematic importance. Just the motions there are supposed to teach you certain things about characterization actually and you're striving and there is a connection between the emotional work and the motions in the physical universe depicted in a fictional way on screen whether it's a movie or a game. And on the other hand, the dialogue is basically cutscenes that you really have the time want to skip through ahead to the next big deal. That's what most of this is. It's a computer game. And not even a great computer game. Uh, there was one scene that impressed me. The Atlanteans and the Amazons and I guess other people were fighting Steppenwolf. There was the flashback scene. And I thought the inclusion of Vanilla and Green Lantern I thought was a nice, thoughtful touch. It was one of the few places in the movie where they did more than the absolute minimum it was also one of the few places where violence had consequences. All through the movie, you have Steppenwolf swinging an axe and sometimes even killing people. But the Green Lantern is about the only time you actually see the axe enter into somebody and their actual consequences. That scene was better than most. But on the other hand, as I'm watching the scene, I think at one point I actually laughed because it seemed like such a ripoff of the Battle of the Last Alliance in the Lord of the Rings movies. I think on one level, they're trying to shoot it like 300, but for the most part, Steppenwolf's just Sauron, and everyone else is just Elrond and the humans. I'm looking and I'm going, okay, you added a Green Lantern to a movie that came out in 2001. Really? I'm, 
but at the same time, once again, if nine-year-old me had seen it, I'd have been like, oh my God, this is incredible battle, but I'd seen it done better. And granted, two people directed the movie, so it's going to be schizophrenic in ways. They turned Wonder Woman into just another character. They made her boring. They made her dialogue boring. They generally made her perspective boring. After we've seen Patty Jenkins do a good turn with her in Wonder Woman, in fact, Wonder Woman's much more interesting in Dawn of Justice than she is in Justice League. Back to Ant-Man. Since the caper movie, you need an assistant, and they made him an assistant. Ant-Man has his Hispanic friend who serves as a storytelling device. He doesn't really matter as a character. You just need him because other elements of the plot won't work if he's not there. And I don't remember the dialogue that his Hispanic friend had. I can't quote any lines, but I remember his dialogue was way better than it needed to be. I remember that he had a very distinctive voice and a distinctive view of the world. When you heard him talk, he sounded like himself. And when he was speaking, he was interesting because they put care into his character and into words. And almost none of the characters in this movie had that kind of effort put into their words. The dialogue was just perfunctory. The only characters that had their own voices were Flash, Aquaman, and Bruce Wayne about half of the time. And everyone else, the dialogue is just written so that we can get the exposition across so that we can move on to the next fight. It just feels shoddy most of the time. We listen to these characters talk and you're like, okay, shut up. These fights don't make sense. I don't know why this guy's doing bad things. and Nobody cares why this guy's doing bad things, least of all the writers. Yeah, it's all at the level of a first draft with one crucial difference. With the first draft, you're supposed to get across one big idea that you then try to bring out of the marble by cutting and hewing. But here, I don't get what the big idea of the movie was. I think more of the action scenes than you do. I think that having the Flash run around Superman and realizing in slow-mo horror at super speed that Superman can almost keep up with him is a very good sense of the power of Superman and what brings characters to him and what makes the fans love him so much. And it's all conveyed wordlessly. In the same sequence, just seeing Superman come up, he has a tragic, cruel beauty about him that is astonishing, and it's the Zack Snyder specialty. Without saying anything, the look he gives when you're not sure if he's really a good guy anymore. That is the best scene in the movie. The sense of the tragedy, that's the potential of this, and again, computer games live for this, but very rarely achieve it, and somehow Zack Snyder gets it effortlessly, But you're right that these things are rare, they're few and far between, and the writing was just not designed to bring you up to these climaxes and to move you away from them with a certain understanding of what you just witnessed. There's also another thing that Armand White noticed with Wonder Woman trying to reach for her weapon and not quite making it. And you see the whole tragic striving in her face and in the motion and the flash is there to help out. And you see this measly little character can make a crucial difference for heroes far greater and nobler than he'll ever be. Again, all of this is done wordlessly these sequences make you think they had great things on their hands and they squandered everyone. I don't understand it. A lot of them are just trademark Zack Snyder. You could see what he was getting at here. He's like a master painter who with a few brushes can hint at something that astounds you already, but you expect that to be made into a full painting at some later point when he gets to it. It's just that it never was done. Well, with the Flash scene, what makes it work also is that as an audience surrogate, the Flash is not a hero, the Flash is not a tough guy. So that when he sees Superman's eye move into the corner, we appreciate some of the fear that we would have 
Because if it was Aquaman, Aquaman's a tough guy, he's a stoic guy. Wonder Woman's the daughter of Zeus, I guess. Well, so all the Flash can do is run away. And what can he do if he can't run away? That is probably the best scene in the movie, because it's the one time where we do get a sense of the emotional vulnerability of the characters. But I'm not even sure Superman's behavior makes sense in that scene. He doesn't act like he's confused. In fact, he's very stoic, and he's very clinical. Well, what is he thinking? There's the point where he's mad at Bruce Wayne, you won't let me live and you won't let me die. But I'm not sure that his behavior ever adds up to making sense. There's the visual sense of, oh my God, what happens if this good guy comes back as a bad guy? He's come back from the other side. What does he come back as? But its thematic predicate isn't laid, so that his behavior is confusing in the moment, but it doesn't really make much sense in hindsight either. The movie was supposed to have this very strange structure where we have two climaxes, the emergence of Superman and then the last thing, and the way it was supposed to work out is this. You see this series of heroes, all of whom are incredibly weak in some way. All of them have crises in their lives. This was The characterization was pretty bad, but you see that these are broken people. Because they're not Superman, they had to pay a terrifying price for their powers and this continuously faces them up to their limits. And you only see this with Flash, who all of a sudden realizes that he's been through hell, and he's tried to cope with it, and he's supposed to be a stand-in for millennials who see an America crashing around them and have to box clever. They have to bob and weave emotionally and psychologically with no certainty of the future. And you see all of a sudden his power of running away from things is taken away, and all these characters have very serious uncertainties that have to do with the relationship between their power and their brokenness. They're always connected, and that would show up in the case of Superman because he has no such weaknesses. It is the fact that they're mostly strangers to Superman, and they're in certain ways challengers because they're also superheroes, and they're supposed to face up to the fact that they don't know whether Superman would love them whether he would accept them, not as equals, but as some junior partner in an enterprise, and they don't really know whether he has any reason, because they don't really know that any of them are worth loving. And this is supposed to deal with the relationship between celebrity and ambition in America. Superman attracts attention just for being Superman. He wouldn't have to do anything for the world's eyes to be on him. Everybody else is massively uncertain around him, whatever their particular achievements, and however powerful they are in some ways. Again, they screwed it up for reasons that I do not understand, but the plot layout where you see the meetings of the heroes and their peculiar crisis leading up to this one moment where you're judged against the only superheroes there really is, the only god among men, you see where they were going with this, what they were trying to achieve, but so little of it was done. It's like trying to climb up the stairs and only every fourth step maybe is there and they're not all certain either. That's not a way to get your audience up to that higher level. And so also what's supposed to follow out of that, that these characters realize that they're going to have to start being heroes, which they haven't yet been, all of that is supposed to be owed to their confrontation with Superman. And that's the strange Zack Snyder Christian core of the movie. They're supposed to be grateful for his accepting them. They're supposed to see a character who's willing to sacrifice and show a love that they have not earned. And the brokenness of the heroes, like say in Sucker Punch, a lot of the layout is supposed to be heroes who get powers out of their weaknesses as they did in Sucker Punch. And there was supposed to be a bit of exploration of the craziness of freedom with a variety of heroes like you had in Watchmen. These things, they're supposed to show the other part of Zack Snyder, his exploration of freedom, how attractive and how destructive it can be. But... Again, it's striking just how little work was put into this. 
I can tell these things. I'm sure that somebody paid to write would just have had to pay attention to these sorts of things and sketch more stuff out, put more work into it. You're right. What I was thinking about is like football. Coming out of a half, you sometimes see a team that's already decided that they're losers. They're not really trying to win. They're not really trying to do anything. Nothing comes together for them. That's how this felt. Well, I also think that the structure of the story was largely dictated to the directors by corporate. And the directors are trying to tell a story that they don't really believe in themselves and that they know that they're all on the chain. And one of the problems with the movie It falls victim to mistakes made in earlier movies. Justice League opens with everybody being really sad about Superman, but we never really got to see Superman because he died in the second movie. When we actually look at how people experienced Superman in the previous two movies, in the first movie he's introduced and Metropolis is destroyed. In the second movie we see him and they blow up half of Congress. and They meant that as a bad thing. And then he dies at the end of that movie. So the audience never really has much of an experience of Superman, never has a chance to form a relationship with him. And neither does the DC Universe. We see the monument to Superman, but where's all the destruction that came about at the beginning of his battle with Zod? That's all swept away. But in the course of sweeping that away, you've also swept away their actual experience of Superman. This was September 11th times 100. We saw it happen. Now, we have to pretend that didn't happen. We have to pretend that wasn't how people related to Superman. And also, the conflicts in Dawn of Justice were never really resolved. One of the things about Dawn of Justice is there's still enough of the original Christopher Nolan, David Goyer script that it pokes through the bones of the movie. And when we see Dawn of Justice, we see certain conflicts laid out. Like the original Man of Steel 2 that Christopher Nolan was seeing was how do powerful people relate to the community? There's going to be two powerful people, Superman, who's super strong, and you have Lex Luthor, who's a tech billionaire who's bigger than the state, bigger than the community. His power expresses itself in intelligence and money rather than alienness and strength. Well, that was never really resolved. So now they have to relate to Superman without ever actually having the basis of Superman's relationship to the community. So basically, they tried to get from first base to third base without tagging second. Now they're out. Like you said, all these emotional steps are missing. And the thing is, I don't think Zack Snyder's as smart or as well-educated as Christopher Nolan, but he's not stupid. And he knows that these thematic elements are missing. And like you said, it's like that football team that feels like it quit. To give you another example, think about the opening for Dawn of Justice, where Bruce Wayne is running into danger. It's futile. The courage is amazing. But at the same time, all he's doing is running from one crash to another when he managed to save one little girl. And then he sees Zod and Superman dying. And there's like this look of hate in his eyes. And it's completely earned and everything makes sense. There are no scenes that are that well crafted, that have that much love put into them. Because the people who are making the movie know this is the wrong kind of movie to make. They know this is not the time to make Justice League. This is the time to make Batman 1. This is the time to make Wonder Woman 2 and build up to Justice League. But they're cashing a paycheck. They've decided that the people who are paying for the movie aren't paying for a good movie. They're not going to let them make a good movie. So let's just go through the motions and tell the story we have to tell. In the same way that people who are making those 1980s cartoons were kind of going through the motions. Yes. So you bring up a great point. Warner Brothers and its ownership of DC started with this glorious genre-defining Batman trilogy and even Man of Steel, which showed new departures that were completely captivating both on an emotional and on an intellectual level and just had gorgeous things to show you. Then the executives at the studio completely killed this project 
Nolan left, Goyer left, Zack Snyder has left as well. And it's unprecedented. I can't think of any enterprise in movie business that's been so big, so public, so profitable, so prestigious, only to be killed by the people who apparently just don't want our money for some reason. How much more money would we have to throw at them to convince them that we really like this? And you're right that there was a lot of greatness thrown off just because they wanted to get to the climax without earning it. The whole point of Superman is that people have a right to be terrified. That there will be people who get angry and want to fight for good and for bad reasons. And also, like you see in Justice League, that there will be people who are inspired by nearness to Superman. They think there's more you could do. That you should be an ambition as well. That you could achieve something very important. That Superman also brings America a new birth of freedom. American energies will be unleashed now. Partly in confrontation, partly in cooperation with him. And that's what the whole universe was supposed to be about for these different perspectives, characters, social classes, abilities, and different social challenges. As we saw, Dawn of Justice gives you the Zuckerberg Senate hearings three years before they happened, or four. And so with any number of other things, they reflect on society and on American situations. The Flash and in his own different way, Cyborg would look at the problem of tech and digital technology for America. From the way it creates crippling anxiety to the way it liberates people to try new things and come up with new forms of organization. But instead of getting the movie where these guys evolve and you see the way they're poised between the new birth of freedom that Superman gives America and on the other hand the real problems of social life for different people in America, instead of getting that you were rushed through it all and yeah, this is not going to happen. There was no way this was going to work. You can still see the climax of Dawn of Justice in the original script, Superman fighting Bizarro. That's what Lex Luthor taking Zod's body was supposed to be, create an evil reflection of Superman. It was important to dramatize to Clark Kent as much as anybody else why people are right to fear him. And you can actually see somebody saying, yeah, but before that, we want to have Superman fight Batman. And you can see him going, no, no, he has to fight Bizarro before he fights Batman. He has to see his own dark reflection before he can confront Batman. Yes, exactly. And not only that, after he fights Batman, instead of fighting Bizarro, his own dark reflection, what if he fights Doomsday? Because I remember when he fought Doomsday, there was a big story, and he can die. And you go, no, having him die immediately after fighting Batman in the same movie is one climax too many, and it's just bad. And they're like, no, no, this is going to be so much better. And you can see just Nolan just saying, you know what? Make your own goddamn movie. And he left. And he was absolutely right. But it also screws up the dramatic dynamics for Justice League now. Now, not all the things that are wrong with Justice League are necessarily as a result of them screwing up Man of Steel 2. Even at that, it still should have been a better movie than it was. But you can see why they started with two strikes against them. Ah, the good news, I think, is that the movie was very popular, and now these characters actually have a chance, which may be the best possibility that Justice League just takes the punishment for this and future endeavors get a clean slate or something closer to that. I'm not sure how popular it was. I was looking it up on Box Office Mojo. It made $700 million, which should be a lot of money. I mean, a lot of movies would be glad to make $200 million, but its rumored budget was over $300 million. Yeah. Or to break even, its theatrical run probably had to be closer to $800 million. So half the money about stays in the theaters in America. From overseas, you get maybe a quarter to a third, so way more. But I said popular, not profitable. The studio paid for their stupidity, but people still showed up in those numbers to see the movie. Like Suicide Squad, the other DC movie that turned into a train wreck, but which was also massively popular, went over 800 million. 
So that's why I'm saying that the characters have actually a good chance of a future with the public, but it's not clear whether the studio is going to correct course after this catastrophe. Well, we talked about the margin of suckitude in an earlier podcast. How do you calculate how much the movie made versus how much would it made if it was any damn good? I was actually looking at the numbers. It made $700 million. That is the difference between how much The Force Awakens made and The Last Jedi made. In other words, The Last Jedi made $700 million less than The Force Awakens, which is to say it made a Justice League less than The Force Awakens. That's a lot of suckitude. When you get all your big superheroes together and it only makes $700 million. And one thing that really struck me about the movie is it doesn't look like it costs $300 million. The entire third act looks terrible. It looks like it costs less than $100 million. And in an earlier podcast, we were talking about the horror movie, A Quiet Place. It's a cheap movie, but it never looks cheap. Whereas Justice League is an incredibly expensive movie that often looks cheap. Yeah, it put an end to great hopes. As great as these DC movies started, so terrible have they ended. It's amazing. And there's an obvious comparison. Justice League should have been built up to be a success at least as big as the Avengers movie, which cleared over a billion dollars, 600 million in America, if not The Force Awakens, which went past a billion dollars in America. That's the sort of ambition the corporation and the universe had, and that's what they were building with incredibly successful movies before, and instead they have collapsed it entirely. Strange to do this sort of anatomy of murder-suicide, but that's what the studios have handed us, and that's what we have to deal with here. So much that would have been a great reflection on American society, so many brief moments of greatness about what heroism looks like now and what it inspires in us and how it scares us, all of it wasted. There are some glimmers of something that's good in there. I thought Aquaman was pretty good and Flash. They demonstrated different ways of dealing with social collapse, whereas the Flash is constantly running away. We have Aquaman becoming a streetwise stoic. I thought that was a nice contrast. Yeah, Those were the two strongest characters in the movie. They were reasonably well thought out. And whenever they're speaking, the writers chose to give them distinct voices. And they're and the, consistent. Yep, and the characters acted their traits. Aquaman was neglected. He was treated with contempt in the press as a biker, a surfer, a bro. But that's just the class contempt you can expect in our cultural conversation. But in reality, seeing in a world of superheroes that guy who has a lower class man pride and a sense of protection and who has to deal with his limits and, as you put it, is a stoic, that's a hit waiting to happen. That would be incredibly popular. Yeah, they still have to figure out how dialogue works under the sea. Because in the movie, Mera has to create an air bubble. And they're going to do an Aquaman movie. Some of it's presumably going to be set underwater. So how do you have these guys not, not going blah, 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 blah. They didn't figure that out in this movie. But you would want to spend 90 minutes with this version of Aquaman. And I wouldn't be against spending 90 minutes with that version of The Flash. I think that they did a good version of Flash that was not simply a copy of the WB television version of The Flash. The guy who plays the WV version of The Flash is an excellent actor. And you would have had a lot of problems doing a version of Barry Allen that's just an imitation of him. So having the same basic origin, but at the same time having a very distinct acting style and a very different character, and also a different way of dramatizing his powers. That was another one of those glimmers. Wow, this 
if they hadn't given up, this could have been a much better movie because the Flash stuff works, the Aquaman stuff works, and they also work on a symbolic level and not just on a utilitarian level, whereas you have Cyborg, who is, well, robotic. I mean, his acting is robotic. The, the dialogue is robotic. And so is Wonder Woman's. I mean, when you put Wonder Woman in Patty Jenkins' hands, she's great. She sparkles. When you put Wonder Woman actually in Zack Snyder's hand in Dawn of Justice, she sparkles. Where in this movie, she's just a vehicle for delivering exposition 90% of the time. Yeah, there's a vacuous humanity that's absolutely uninteresting, unearned, and unrelated to the plot. Whereas, you're right, the Dawn of Justice Wonder Woman had a certain mystery. She had to turn from a stranger to risking her life out of her own free will. And in the case of Patty Jenkins, you see somebody struggling with humanity and with the question of evil at a very deep level. The temptation that's unusual and... The movie has an entire third act that's a symbol, the struggle within the human conscience of good and evil, and the temptation to damn it all. Here, all of that falls flat. That's how the movie should have been built on, what the internal requirements of these characters are and how they fit together, and then you'd have had box office gold at the same time as you give a coherence to a universe that's worth exploring. It has heroes that are really, really different, psychologically, socially, they reflect different parts of American society, and they can appeal to different audiences, or appeal to the same audiences in different ways. That is a rich movie-going experience. You want a universe? That's what you should get. But maybe in the future, maybe as the project splits up into different characters. Look at the, what a missed opportunity this movie is. Compare the final climax of this movie, where they're fighting Steppenwolf, to the climax in Ant-Man. Think about how visually inventive the climax of Ant-Man was, where you have the close-ups, where you have these tiny little guys fighting, and where they pan back, and you see that it's on this tiny little arena, which is a toy's train house. But also think about the symbolism. Where are they fighting? You're fighting in his daughter's bedroom. And it's a story about how you be a father when she doesn't actually live with you. For this third-rate property, there is so much visual inventiveness. There is so much symbolic weight. You look at the climactic battle scene in Justice League, and none of that is really there. Well, you think about what it would mean. I can only think of one place where you can set the third act of Justice League. Afghanistan. I don't think there's any writer who's willing to do that, to show that there are consequences to American politics and heroism, and that led to a crisis that's threatening to tear the country apart at a certain symbolic level. They said it in the post-Soviet Eastern Bloc, I guess. That's exactly what it is, and it's completely pointless. And I think it was supposed to be Chernobyl, but it wasn't. You know, what the hell's the point? Who cares about that? That doesn't matter. The question is about confronting America with uh, American power. Uh, so, yeah, you'd have to make certain daring choices that nobody's going to make. And it makes everything fake by comparison because you're not willing to have real stakes for the question of unleashing these powers and claiming that terrorism will improve the world. Well, how about the dark side? At least Dawn of Justice had some part of that with the little scene in the Middle East that's like the Middle East act of Iron Man, but without any of the moral importance. <laughs> And also see the mediocrity of Justice League and how Ant-Man and Justice League deal with the camera. In Ant-Man, you pull away to see that it's all tiny, but you also do the close-ups because these people really are hurting each other. It tells us we're all in these domestic traumas that to the outside world look tiny, but to us are genuinely important. Whereas in Justice League, you have Steppenwolf and Wonder Woman going at each other with axes and swords. And whenever an axe or a sword is supposed to connect, the camera does a sudden pan back so that it removes all the consequences of them going at each other with sharp objects. And that's just terrible storytelling. 
And once again, Zack Snyder isn't stupid. Joss Whedon isn't stupid. They know this is a bad idea. But at the same time, they're shackled. Because if they show consequences, they're afraid that they're not going to get the rating that they're supposed to do. But uh, the emotional logic of the scene is these people have to really be hurting each other. But they never do. Since there are no consequences, the drama is constantly drained out of that scene. So also with the lighting, this movie doesn't have a Zack Snyder brooding color scheme because the studio wouldn't want to take the risk. But the whole point is that if you have this world-ending hell on earth coming and on the other hand all these heroes, you cannot see that clearly. People want to see it clearly, but then you turn it into a cartoon, into a fantasy. You have got to have certain limits on what you see and what you perceive as a moviegoer to get an urgency because otherwise they're just superheroes being superheroes. They look like mannequins because, as you pointed out, there couldn't be any consequences. These are all properties. Nobody's going to risk them. And all of these things require artistic choices, finesse, and a certain wisdom about how you treat your audience. Everything was screwed up. But it could have been done so much better. All the failure is so gratuitous. It's unexplainable. Well, Pete, it's, as I said, the anatomy of a murder-suicide, but it speaks to both the movie world now and to what DC really has to offer the American audience by way of reflection on society and character and the anxieties of the time and what it is that we need heroes to look at these things clearly from a perspective that brings a certain confidence of its own that can face up to what is otherwise the uncertainty with which we live. Well, also, I think that when Christopher Nolan left the series, it wrenched the dramatic heart out of the entire property. Christopher Nolan pretty clearly had a story about how Superman was supposed to progress. And Zack Snyder and Christopher Nolan had an idea about how Batman was supposed to progress. When Nolan left, it wasn't going to go the way Nolan wanted. But now how was it supposed to go? And nobody ever figured it out. Patty Jenkins figured out how Wonder Woman was supposed to progress. And that worked because they gave a talented person the space to create a multi-layered story. But when it came to the broader property, after booting Nolan, they weren't going to trust anybody else either. So these guys were constantly shackled. They said, all right, you have to get these guys together and you have to fight. The directors are like, all right, this is how we do it. And then the suits go, no, that's not how you do it. It's a very simple story, guys. All you do is you get these guys together and they fight. And also look at all the characters that they introduced in Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy was a big hit. Nobody knew what the damn raccoon was. And that worked. And you could almost see Zack Snyder and Nolan going... Yeah, but the reason why it worked is because they had the space to create these multi-layered narratives. And the suits of guys know it's just people wearing pajamas fighting. Have a bunch of people fighting. We don't need that other crap. And that other stuff is what makes it work. It's what makes people care. And what you have is these hyperactive eight-year-olds in the boardroom constantly misunderstanding the storytelling dynamics and screwing up. Zack Snyder knows better. Joss Whedon knows better. They just weren't allowed to do better because the people in charge believe that these were dumb, shallow stories for dumb, shallow people. And what makes these stories work, what makes people come back to these stories is that there are other layers that speak to people's anxieties and their aspirations. If those layers are missing in 2018, people have enough choices and they've experienced enough better art, they'll, they'll go, you know what? No, thanks. My expectations in 1984 were extremely low for these kinds of stories because my experiences were that they were bad stories. But I think even nine-year-olds have higher expectations now. So when they see something like Justice League, even though they can't articulate, wait a minute, there's no overarching dramatic theme. They don't think in those terms, but they can feel it and they just move on to something else. Yes, you're right. Consumers are more savvy because of all the changes in the industry and simply in how much talent is put into writing and directing. And that's ultimately the lesson of Justice League. 
destroy your writers, destroy your directors, you've destroyed your property. These people need more freedom and the trust of the studio to do their work. However high the budgets are, however high the stakes for long-term projects of many movies in a universe, there's no way around it. You cannot automate art. And people are going there because these artists really touch their hearts and show them memorable things. One last point. Think about how much of the dialogue in this movie is utterly forgettable, utterly meaningless. And then think about how much emotion they're managed to get all through Guardians of the Galaxy, simply through the words, I am Groot. As you watch these characters interact, think about how soulless and utilitarian the actual dialogue is. Yeah, so my test for multi-hero adventures is, after this happens, kids who see this, will they remember something? Will a certain character speak to them in a powerful way that they can sum up in a couple of lines they'll keep repeating? Do they have that connection with a specific version of heroism? Different ones will have different favorites. So yeah, it's a fairly sad conclusion for a fairly sad affair, but hopefully people can learn that there's more potential here. Even in failures, you realize, as you put it, you should think more and appreciate more what movies that get it right get so well. And also you can see what's wasted, what stuff we're not yet able to do, that people are trying to get at it and then they're prevented or they fail. And presumably that's part of what the future is, getting these things right. Pete, thanks for doing this and let's do another one soon. All right, my pleasure, Titus. All the best. Thanks for listening, folks, and if you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share our podcasts. You can find us on iTunes as American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast, on Twitter as Titus Film, and you can always drop a comment on social media. Until next time.